Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. All right, will you turn with me back to Hebrews chapter 12? And last week we began this chapter by studying the first two verses where the Christian life, where our following Jesus Christ, it was pictured as a race for us to run. And God told us in verse 2 that our only hope of running our faith race well, of finishing it strong, our only hope is going to be in keeping our eyes on Jesus, the one who ran it perfectly and who completed it, as well as keeping our eyes on the reward that's at the finish line for us. But our, our faith race is not without obstacles. Uh, in fact, it's, it's not so much, if you're going to picture a race, it's not so much a race on a track in a stadium as it is one of those Spartan races. You know what I'm talking about with obstacles? Uh, sometimes they call them mud runs and people get all messy. Um, there's obstacles to overcome. In the Christian's faith race, there's opposition. <clears throat> there's affliction. Sometimes there's even persecution. And there's also training. There's discipline from God. Uh, referred here in verses 3 to 13, at least in the King James, as chastisement. If you have a modern version, it probably says discipline. And um, listen, if we do not have the right understanding of these obstacles and then how to overcome them, they will severely impede our progress. Uh, it will negatively affect our testimony. We need so badly to remember the audience that this was originally written to. They were first and second generation Christians. And they were facing intense persecution. They were facing a temptation to abandon their faith. And their Christian faith race, it was not easy. And neither is ours. And it won't be. But in Christ, in Christ, we have everything we need to run it well and receive our reward at the finish line. Amen? Well, let's pray before we study this. Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you'd quiet our hearts and focus our minds in this beautiful gift you've given us that is your word. It's what called us to faith in you. It's what sustains our faith in you. We need it as badly as we need air and water and food and rest. And I pray this morning that um, your Holy Spirit would drive it deep into our hearts, the beautiful truths you've given us here. For when we endure opposition, when we meet obstacles in this race that you have called us to run, I pray that the truths here would be so ingrained in our minds and our hearts that we would be able to, in your strength, leap over those obstacles and continue on to that finish line. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verses 3 to 4, we're told that in our faith race as followers of Jesus, we have a Christ to follow. 
And these verses, especially verse 3, talks about the experience of Christ. Verse 3 picks up right where verse 2 left off last week. If we are going to run the faith race that we have been given by God, if we're going to run it well, we must keep our eyes on Jesus. So we're told here in verse 3 to consider him. It's a good idea to keep your eyes on the one who has led the way, who's ran the race perfectly, who's blazed the trail, isn't it? We're to keep our eyes on Christ, to consider him. Specifically, in this passage, we're to consider Jesus in regard to facing opposition and overcoming opposition in our faith race. That's because Jesus, our superior Savior, he provides us with an excellent example of endurance. Did Jesus endure opposition? We've sung of it this this morning. He sure did. Um, That's the idea behind the King James word contradiction here in verse 3. And one way that opposition came against Jesus was from sinful men. I mean, from his birth, when you think about it, from his birth to his death, from Bethlehem to Calvary, and right on into today, uh, Jesus experienced rejection, he experienced mocking, and finally an escalation to physical violence, even death. And God tells us here in verse 3 to consider the experience of Christ. This was his experience, the one we follow. And he tells us to do that in verse 3 so that we won't be wearied and faint in our minds when we might face similar opposition in our own faith race following behind him. Because it will be the experience of the Christian. It wasn't just the experience of Christ. If a Christian is a little Christ, a follower of Christ, it will be your experience and my experience too. Now, we might not include that reality. Uh, when we share the gospel with someone. But Jesus did. John 16, 31, Jesus told those who would trust in him and who would follow him, these things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And here in Hebrews 12, 4, after calling us to consider Christ, God tells us that we have not yet resisted unto blood and are striving against sin and sinful men. So for those first hearing this back in the first century, and for us reading it this morning, um, that's truth. It is. You're all here. None of you have sacrificed your lives yet for Christ. They hadn't either if they were hearing it. We haven't been called to do that just yet. The original audience, they, they sure had endured persecution, for their faith. Back in Hebrews 10, 33 and 34, it had described the mocking, the imprisonment, even raiding of their homes, but they had not yet been called to fully follow in the example of Christ by losing their lives as an experience as a Christian. And we may face opposition from sinful men as Jesus' followers, just like Jesus did. We may suffer persecution. We may even be called to lose our lives in following Christ. Many Christians have had that as their experience. But for them, the original audience here, and for us, uh, that has not yet occurred. It's important to remember in all that God is trying to teach us here. I remember a few years ago I was going through a difficult time. I had a friend. He encouraged me with the same truth that God gives us all here in verse 4. It's an encouragement that brought me back to the reality in our conversation uh, because of some suffering I was experiencing. And because of the close friendship we had, this friend asked me a simple question. He said, Jason, are you on the cross? 
Are you on the cross? Yeah, I was having a hard time. No, I was not enduring anything close to what my Savior, uh, the one I follow, to what he endured. And I'm so thankful that I had a friend who was loving me, loving enough uh, toward me to speak that truth, bring me back to reality by asking me to consider Christ, just what God does in verses 3 and 4 here. Now, secondly, in our faith race, we have a chastisement to welcome. In verses 5 to 11, seven different times, either chastise, chastising, chastisement, chasten is written, at least in the King James. That's in addition to other words that might be synonymous with discipline, um, like rebuke or correction, even a pretty strong one here, scourging. But that's, that's the idea presented in verses 5 to 11. It's one of discipline. What do you think when you think of that word? I think too often we perceive it in a negative uh, light with a negative connotation. It should not be perceived that way. What's the root word of the word discipline? Disciple. And isn't, isn't that what we want to be? A follower of Jesus? A, a learner of Jesus Christ? So God gives us a couple of truths here in verses 5 to 11 to help us see his discipline of us correctly in our faith race. First of all, we see discipline's declaration in verses 5 through 8. What God's discipline of us in our faith race of following Jesus, what it loudly declares is that we are his, (laughs) that we're his. We are God's children. Look at verses 5 and 6. And you have forgotten that exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening, the discipline of the Lord. Don't faint when you are rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son that he receiveth. They had forgotten that truth. Have you? It's a quote from Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. I'll read that. It's just minorly different here. In Proverbs 3, 11, and 12, it says, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. Don't be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, even as a father and the son whom he delights. You understand that when we face difficult life circumstances as a Christian, whether it's uh, the opposition in our faith race from persecution or from affliction, really from any, any kind of suffering, what God is telling us here in verses 5 and 6 is that it is evidence that we are his children, that there's a relationship. Fathers discipline their children, don't they? At least good, loving ones do. And verses 7 and 8 reaffirm this reality by calling us to endure this form of discipline from our Father. That, that's an evidence of relationship with him. Verse 7, if you endure chastening or discipline, well, God, God's dealing with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? Now, there's some different words given here in verses 5 to 7 for God's discipline of us. Um, rebuke in verse 5, chasten, verse 6, scourgeth, again in verse 6. And God may be, in using those different terms, he may be indicating varying levels of intensity in his discipline of the Christian. But all those words declare one message. Do you know what it is? Child, you are mine. You're mine. And I love you. I receive you. You know, verse 8 shockingly communicates the implication that if we are without any kind 
of opposition in our faith race. If we never experience discipline from God, well, that declares something, too, that we aren't his. And so on that fact alone, we ought to welcome, (laughs) welcome chastisement, welcome God's discipline. God further motivates us to endure his discipline of us, his making disciples of Jesus Christ of us in our faith race by reminding us of discipline's design in verses 9 through 11. When we have studied other scripture passages that teach this same truth, I have often told you that one of the ways that God has helped me to learn to endure difficult circumstances that that he sovereignly uses as discipline in our lives, it's to always remember that, first of all, it has a purpose, and secondly, it has a period. There's a point to it, Christian. It's not meaningless, and there's a period. It won't last forever. And so listen, on those two realities alone, I have been amazed at what God has brought me through. There is a through, amen? There is a through. And so here in verses 9 and 10, God correlates this heavenly father-child relationship with our earthly ones. And there's a design and discipline in both. When our dads correct us, well, we appreciate it. We respect them. Maybe not initially, right? But, but eventually we do. Boy, I got corrected as a kid. I'm sure that's a shock to you. I had more than a few whoopings. I found myself in the timeout corner frequently. One time my mom came in and found out I had put myself in the timeout corner. And then she had the task of trying to figure out what I had done to put myself there. I believe it was, I had these little Fisher Price little people, and I threw them in the washing machine. And they were in there having a good time in the bubbles in the water. But I'm so thankful now. I'm so thankful now for the corrective discipline my parents gave me. And the point of verse 9 is, if this is how we feel about our earthly fathers, well, shouldn't we much rather be in subjection to the Father of Spirits, our, our heavenly spiritual father, and, and live <laughs> live by being that way, thinking that way, feeling that way? Shouldn't we be thankful to him and joyfully submit to his loving discipline of us. Even welcome, welcome it. Now, I'm going to go one further because scripture does. And it's my prayer that the Holy Spirit will make you ready to receive its truth. Should we not see it as a gift? You know the context of the book of Philippians. God has the apostle Paul write it in a Roman jail. Paul's on death row, maybe the first time. There's actually twice that he was in there. But the theme of the book of Philippians is joy. (laughs) It's joy. And I want you to pay special attention to the specific God-inspired words in the message of Philippians 1.29. It says, For unto you it is given, on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Did you get that? Not only is it given to you, Christian, on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, of course that's a gift, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourself. It's a gift of God. We recognize that. But what he's telling us there, that God's loving discipline of us, though it might not feel like it, it's a gift as well, a gift of suffering, a gift just like the gift of believing 
on him. Just like the gift of our salvation. God says the same thing through the psalmist in Psalm 84:11, where it says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield, and we would say amen, and the Lord will give grace and glory, and we will say amen. And it says, No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing will he withhold from those that walk uprightly. So do you understand the depth of this message from God for you who are experiencing the suffering and the pain and the difficulty that is the loving discipline of God? What God is telling us here, with the intent of helping us to endure opposition in our faith race, God's telling us it's a gift. God's telling us it's a good thing. Christian, that's the message here in verses 10 and 11. Our earthly fathers corrected and disciplined us after their own pleasure. We could say, um, as seemed good to them. Not always perfect. Sometimes with motivations that might not have been the best, but not God. Verse 10. For the, they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But he for our what? Our prophet. <laughs> So that we might be partakers of his holiness. He does it for our profit. That's why he disciplines us. And that's why we should welcome it. So that we can be partakers of his holiness. Is it fun? Not according to verse 11. No chastening, no discipline for the present seemeth to be joyous but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised or trained thereby. It's important that we pay attention to two words there. Seemeth. That's different than reality sometimes, isn't it? What seems to be. But yieldeth, yieldeth is pretty fact of the matter. It's there. You can see it. It's not fun. And we're tempted when we face this. We're tempted to cry out, ah! <laughs> Why? Me, God, well, we're told why in verses 5 to 11. Because it declares that we are his children. And God's discipline of us has a design. It's for our profit. It's to make us holy. It's to make us Christ-like. It's only afterwards. It's only after going through that we always finally see the benefit. That it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are exercised by that discipline. Through it. Through it because they endure. And nothing, listen to me, listen to scripture here. Nothing will help you endure the chastening discipline of God in the present like this perspective change right here. Finally seeing what it declares. Finally seeing God's design in it. And being able to welcome it as a gift, as a good thing. That'll take you from bucking it to blessing it, and maybe even blessing others by your endurance, blessing them by teaching them how to do it. You know, um, Charles Haddon Spurgeon had this quote about this passage. He says, many believers are deeply grieved when they endure God's discipline of them because they don't immediately feel like they are being profited by their afflictions. Well, you don't expect to see peaches or pecans grow on a tree that you planted a week ago, right? Take some time. Spurgeon said only a little child will put flower seeds into a garden and 
expect to see blooms in an hour. Finally, we have a command to obey, verses 12 and 13. In our obstacle and opposition-laden faith race, we have a command to obey. Enduring God's discipline, we need to stand strong. And so the athletic metaphor that began in verse 1 of chapter 12, the, the faith race picture of the Christian life, it continues here in verse 12 with a message from the coach. We'll put capital C there because it's referring to the one we are to consider Jesus Christ back in verse 3. And what does he say in verse 12? Lift up the hands that hang down. Straighten up those feeble needs. We're kind of receiving a halftime pep talk here. Stand strong in the faith race. Stand up. Watch your form. Have you ever seen someone trying to run well with bad form? Maybe it's been a long race, a marathon, a half marathon, and they're on the tail end of it. It's a sad sight to see, and it's an obstacle to running well in and of itself. But there's a need seen here by our coach for some spiritual strength. In verse 12, he commands us to toughen up, to stand strong. Now, have you ever had someone tell you to do something and you really don't know how to do it or you don't feel like you can or maybe you don't want to? Well, God never does that to us. He's not doing that here in this stand strong command that we need to obey. How do we renew our strength? We have a need for strength. How do we renew our strength? Has he told us? Isaiah 40, 31, those who what? Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Mounting up with wings like eagles, they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk, not faint. Well, who's the they? They that wait upon the Lord. Wait in the Hebrew there is kavah. It means to long for those who long for the Lord. It means to linger with those who linger with the Lord. It means to look upon. Well, we've already been told to do that numerous times in chapter 12. We have no strength. <laughs> he, he is our strength. And we trust in him. And we trust in what he is declaring to us in his discipline of us, that we are his child. We trust in what he has designed in his discipline of us. And we can trust in that because Jesus, we sang about this this morning, Jesus paid the penalty for all of our sins, past, present, and future on the cross. You know what that means? It means that any discipline that you endure as a born-again Christian is never punitive. Christ paid your sin debt. He paid the penalty. Never punitive. It's always purifying. Spurgeon also said this, faith sees that in its worst sorrow, there is nothing punitive not one drop of God's wrath in it. Instead, it's all sent in love. That's what it says here. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And when we finally get an understanding of that, we can stand strong. We can stand strong like Job <laughs> and say what he said in Job 23.10. He knoweth the way that I take. There's design in it. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as what? Gold. I shall come forth as gold. And we endure knowing we will experience what Job experienced if we remain faithful. And we'll be able to say what Job said in Job 40, verses 3 to 5. God, forgive me for complaining. Forgive my hanging down hands and my weak knees. 
I uttered what I understood not. Things too wonderful for me. Before, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now, after going through your discipline, now my eyes have seen you, God. All because we obey God's command here in Hebrews 12, 12 and 13. Because we considered Christ. Because instead of uh, hating his discipline or bucking at it, we welcomed it. And because we renewed our strength by longing for and lingering with and looking upon Jesus Christ. That's how we stay straight. That's what verse 13 tells us to do. Not just stand strong, but stay straight in your faith race. That's how we avoid running aimlessly. Verse 13 describes it as going off course, turning out of the way. This is how we respond as God asks us to here when his discipline is experienced in our lives. And we, like people here, maybe have, in the people of verse 5, we've forgotten these truths. We might have known them. But then more discipline came, chastening came. Don't veer off course. Stand strong. Stay straight. I can't not invite someone who's never trusted in Jesus as Savior to do that here this morning. And so in our time of invitation, uh, our time of response always includes that invitation here at Dublin First Baptist. But, but God wrote this message to Christians, to runners in this faith race. And his invitation to you this morning is consider Christ. You want to follow him? You want to receive the reward of heaven? Then know you will be asked to face what the one you followed faced. And the invitation from God's word here this morning is also to welcome, to wel- not just endure it, but to actually welcome his discipline. And that will probably require you changing your perspective, aligning it with God's word here. Hearing what he is declaring in it, you're mine, child. I, I love you. Reckoning, recognizing his design in it. And it's for your profit. It's for your Christ-likeness. It's for your good. It's for his glory. It's never punitive for the Christian. It's always purifying. Will you welcome it this morning? If so, I wonder who would give thanks for it as a gift, as a good thing. Who, who will ask him right now to help you endure it for his good and for his glory? Finally, the invitation is to obey his command here. Stand strong, stay straight, long for him, linger with him, look for him. And don't change this perspective he's reminded you of when discipline comes Tuesday or next month. Don't waver. Don't go off course. As Tommy comes and leads us in a time to respond to God's word, however the Holy Spirit has used it to move you this morning, Christian, I ask that you would trust and obey.